0: free. And Lord, give to us a passion for your Word, that we may grow and walk in all your ways. On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. remain standing, take your Bibles, turn uh, again to John chapter 15. I'm going to finish up that passage we started looking at last week. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 27. So John chapter 15, verses 18 through 27, if you'll follow along as I begin reading now in verse 18. If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. They will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. I kind of threw in verses 26 and 27 there at the end. When the, first, when the first English Puritans, who called themselves Pilgrim, landed in America seeking religious freedom, when they landed, they claimed this land in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they established their colony, or as they established their colony, uh, the basis of their civil government was the Word of God. And as other Puritans followed in their path, as they arrived and settled, establishing other colonies in the new world, they too based their civil governments upon the Bible. And then later, when the founding fathers began to form the new nation, they based our founding documents on Judeo-Christian values and thinking. Although certainly not every one of them was a Christian, but they understood the importance of Christian values and thinking. They understood the basis of the government they were founding. They knew that they were building on, in their words, the supreme being who was the creator, the final reality. And they knew that without that foundation, absolutely everything in the Declaration of Independence would be nothing but sheer, unadulterated nonsense. I mean, these were very brilliant men who understood exactly what they were doing, who understood exactly what was involved. And so from the very beginning, our nation was founded upon Judeo-Christian values and thinking, a, a Christian worldview, if you will. Though again, certainly not every individual was a Christian, but that was the predominant mindset, that was the predominant worldview in that day. From the very beginning, our National Congress was opened by prayer. At the end of the Revolutionary War, the first Thanksgiving Day, to thank God, was immediately called by Congress. And John Witherspoon, the only pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence and a very important man during the founding of our country, he preached a sermon on that day in which he said this, a republic once equally poised, must either preserve its virtue or lose its liberty. In an earlier speech he said, he is the best friend of American liberty who is most sincere and active in pure and undefiled religion. And of course for Witherspoon and the vast majority of people in that day, that meant biblical Christianity. William Penn had said earlier, if we are not governed by God, then we will be ruled by tyrants. Biblical Christianity laid the foundation of this country. Christianity supplied this country with its morals and values, its its thinking, its worldview. But we have not heeded Pastor Witherspoon's warning because, sadly, we have not preserved our virtue. I mean, that has all changed. No longer is Christian thinking the predominant worldview. And in its place, we have secular humanistic thinking, the very antithesis of Christian thinking, and that is the predominant worldview in our nation today. I mean, secular humanism is a godless, man-centered worldview, and therefore secular humanists have no use for God, for the Bible, for the church, or for Christian people in general. And secular humanists have taken over our government, our courts, and our public education. And This is why we are seeing every vestige of God, the Bible, and biblical morals and values being removed from the public square. This is why we are seeing the loss of our inalienable rights given to us by God. And we are very, very rapidly moving toward a totally secular humanistic anti-God culture. You say, and so what is the point? Simply that the fundamental problem in our nation is not political. The ultimate cause of all that we're seeing going on on in our nation is spiritual in nature. It is a spiritual problem. It is an anti-God worldview, a secular humanistic worldview. It is man saying we will not have God rule over us. I mean, this is the bottom line of why the secular humanists hate the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. It has a Christian biblical foundation. It represents biblical morals and values. And they hate it because they hate God. That's the underlying problem. And so just as the psalmist said in Psalm 2 we looked at a few weeks ago, the nations are raging. Our nation is raging. People are plotting in vain. Governments are are setting themselves against God and against Christ. And unless God intervenes, it's going to continue to get worse and worse. And so it behooves us as Christians to prepare ourselves for what is coming. I don't know if I said this last week, I may have, but we need to be like the men of Issachar from the tribe of Issachar who came to King David. The Scripture says of them, they were men who were understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. So we need to prepare ourselves for what's coming. We need to be spiritually prepared. We need to understand the times and know what we ought to do. I mean, as we seek to live... Uh, the Christian life in this post-Christian society, a secular humanistic society that for all intents and purposes is paganized, then we are going to encounter opposition from the world. We can expect it. We can expect the opposition to become more fierce, perhaps even to the point of seeing persecution of Christians here in our own country. But no matter what happens, God is is sovereign. God is in absolute control. And as I said last week, our responsibility remains the same. It's the same as it has always been. We are to love God, to become like Him, to serve Him, and to faithfully proclaim the gospel. I mean, people need to hear the gospel because that is the only hope for our nation. The gospel is the answer. And we can't lose sight of our primary mission. I mean, certainly we need to be understanding and informed and and vote and and active and so forth as individual believers, but we still, we can't lose track of our primary mission. That's to proclaim the gospel. So these difficult times, they have an eternal purpose. I mean, this is merely uh, part of God's unfolding plan. But we have to always remember that what we're seeing in our country and around the world is first and foremost a spiritual problem. It is ultimately the result of man's rejection of God and His Word. And this is why the church and why Christians experience opposition from men. They've rejected God and His Word. But as we learned last week, I mean, this is merely evidence of a much deeper problem that goes to the very core of man's being. Man's rejection of God and his opposition to God's work and God's people is simply the outward manifestation of the hatred for God and for his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that fills the heart of unbelievers. And this is what Jesus told us in John 15, which we began looking at last week. He said, if they hated him, they're going to hate those who follow him as well. I mean, look at at verse 18. Jesus warned his disciples of the world's hatred. He said to them, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And we looked at this last week, but you'll remember the if here does not express any doubt that this would happen because this expects a positive answer. It was certain, and so it could be read, Since the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And so in contrast the Jesus' love for his disciples is the world's hatred for them. And there is no doubt at all that the world will hate the disciples of Jesus and all the followers of Jesus, it is inevitable. The only thing that is uncertain is the matter of degree. And this, of course, will vary from Christian to Christian, depending upon their individual circumstances. But all Christians who publicly identify themselves as followers of Christ and who seek to live in a manner worthy of the gospel are going to be hated by the world and will suffer to some degree at the hands of the world. And why does the the world system, including the religious world, hate Christians? Well, Jesus gave us several answers last week. First, in verse 18, the world hates believers because it hates him. It's inevitable. The hate which is directed toward Christ will also be directed toward those who follow him. Secondly, the world will hate his disciples because they're not of the world. That was verse 19. And there Jesus said, if you are of the world, and the implication is you are definitely not of the world, But if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And that's exactly right. The world loves its own. If you love and pursue the things of the world, uh, the things the world loves and and pursues, if you speak and act like the world does, if you live by the world's standards, you're going to get along just fine in the world. But anyone who does not conform to the pattern of the world, anyone who seeks to live differently, Anyone who seeks to live to a higher standard than the world is on a collision course with the world because the world always opposes those who do not conform. Such was the case with the disciples of Christ, and such is the case of all genuine believers in Christ. And Jesus said his followers are distinguished by what they are not. Because you are not of the world, because I, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You're not of the world, Jesus says, but I chose you out of it. Sure, we're in the world physically, but we're not of the world spiritually. We're part of the world system. We lived here, but Jesus saved us and set us apart from the world. And he set us apart for a reason. Not to blend in with the culture, but to be countercultural. We're to be distinctive. We're to live differently. You know, everything we uh, know, love, and believe as far as the Word of God is concerned is diametrically opposed to what the world loves and believes. So if we're seeking to live the Christian life, we're, I mean, we're going against the flow. We're, we're on a collision course with the world. Our lives as believers are going against the flow, not with it. Because the believer's life demonstrates his separation to Christ, that he's not of this world, and consequently, the world will react to Christians in the same way they reacted to our Lord. Just as they hated our perfect, sinless, holy, loving Lord, they will hate us because we belong to him. And then in verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And his point was that the disciples should expect to follow his example of suffering. That's the example that that we should expect to follow. Because they had, and we have no right to expect better treatment from the world than he received. If they persecuted me, Jesus reiterated, they will also persecute you. And this is why Jesus told those who wanted to follow him that to do so meant a cross. Of course, we've kind of forgotten that in Christianity in the Western world, especially the United States. We don't want anything that resembles the cross because we don't want anything that resembles sacrifice or suffering. We have forgotten that the Christian life is a narrow road, a hard road. It is not a life of ease and pleasure. It is not the popular thing to do. Though many have uh, compromised the truth to popularize it, but all they've done is bring reproach upon Christ and send people to hell with a phony gospel that they supposedly have believed. The word of God is clear that to follow Jesus means not only hatred from the world, but also opposition and suffering and persecution for his sake. They persecuted me, Jesus said, they will also persecute you. But thank you, just as some obeyed his word, he tells the disciples some would respond to their witness as well as they continued to spread the message of the gospel which they had received from Jesus. That brings us now to verse 21 where we pick up where we left off last week. Not only does the world hate us because it hates Jesus and because we are not of the world, we learn now the, the reason for the world's hatred. what Jesus says in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. All these things... All the things mentioned in the preceding verses, you know, they will hate you. They will will not have affection for you. They will not love you, implied in verse 19. They will persecute you, verse 20. All these things, Jesus said, you know, they're, they're going to do all these things on account of my name. They're going to treat you this way because of my name. And, of course, the name stands for the person the totality of who Jesus is. So in effect, Jesus was saying, they will treat you in this way because of me, because of who I am. I mean, it's because they belong to Christ and were identified with him instead of the Jewish leaders that the disciples would become objects of hatred and persecution. Of course, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus warned the disciples in Matthew 24, verse 9, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Speaking to Ananias about the Apostle Paul, uh, the resurrected Christ said in Acts nine sixteen, speaking of Paul, he said, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Peter, writing to persecuted believers, said in 1 Peter 4.14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Suffering for the name of Jesus is a theme that is uh, repeated again and again throughout the New Testament. And yet for some reason we here in the States think that Uh, this is not supposed to be. But you see, that's because so much of the prosperity gospel has infected the evangelical church as well. I mean, people may not, uh, people will say they don't believe in the prosperity gospel, but yet they think it's strange when they suffer, or when they have trials, or when they have difficulties, or they think it's strange that because they've done this, 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 and this, that God doesn't do this, 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 and this. That's how much it's infected all of evangelical Christianity. Because Christ promised his followers suffering. And so here Jesus tells his disciples that he himself is the cause of all the opposition and persecution they would encounter. They would be hated on account of him more than on account of themselves. So you see, loved ones, it's our relationship with Jesus that is the real problem and the obstacle that will always separate us from the world and the world from us. You can talk about God in generic terms all day long. But you start talking about Jesus and the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except by Him, well then, you're going to encounter some opposition. Hatred and opposition. It's our relationship with Jesus that's the real problem. I and mean, the world doesn't doesn't hate Christians first and foremost for what we are and do. They hate us because of our relationship to Christ. They hate Him. They, and they hate us because... of our relationship to him. Because as one man said, with the uncanny power of the unreborn nature, they can smell Christ on us. Reminds me of a scene from The Chosen, you know, the demon-possessed guy and Simon the Zealot. But as long as we're walking with Christ, we're going to be subject to the world's hatred. And we should know that. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and been in a church where the Bible is taught, you should know that. Believers are going to be subject to the world's hatred, and the more closely we're identified with Him by our words and our behavior, by the separated life we live, the more of that hatred of Jesus we we will experience. And that's the Lord's point here in this verse. And, of course, that's the very reason why so many Christians compromise, because they want to avoid uh, this kind of thing at all costs. That's why churches compromise. But the Apostle Paul tells us that suffering for Jesus' sake is a gift to us. Yeah, says that. That's, again, that's not one of those little promises you ever find in your little <laughs> daily bread thing, you know, on your counter, you know, the little precious promises. That's usually not found in there. But Paul said in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, or that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's promised. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation." Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. You see, God in His sovereign grace not only gives believers the incredible gift of faith to believe in Him, but also the privilege to suffer for Him. You know, there's a verse uh, uh, in Philippians, I can't recall the the, the, uh, reference at the moment, but Paul said, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. And everybody loves that part of the verse, and they leave off the last part. He says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And of course, the suffering Paul was speaking of there in Philippians 1.29 that I just read is suffering that comes as a direct result of being a Christian. Suffering and persecution brought on because of our faith in Christ. And he says this suffering for the sake of Jesus is a gift of God's grace to us. Now don't think I'm, I'm suggesting you should go out and start looking for trouble. Um, but that won't be necessary. If you simply seek to live a holy, consistent life for Jesus Christ, trouble's going to come to you. In the book of Acts, when the apostles were beaten and told never again to preach in Jesus' name, you remember what they did? They left the place rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for His name. I mean, they had the right perspective when it came to suffering for Christ. They realized what a high honor it was. That it was an honor that He graciously bestows on His faithful saints. When Jesus left this earth, His name, the gospel that sinners in Him, still remains. And of course, the enemy of our souls hates His name and will oppose and persecute followers of Jesus when they proclaim His name and when they proclaim salvation in no other name. I mean, all these things, all this persecution and hatred, they will do to you, Jesus said, on account of me. But the ultimate reason for this hatred and persecution, Jesus said, look back at verse 21, the last part. Here's why. Because they do not know him who sent me. Ultimately, the world hates Jesus and his followers because it doesn't know the one who sent him. It doesn't know God. They don't know God. And keep in mind that Jesus was speaking about the most religious people of the first century. I mean, they proudly proclaimed their belief in God. Yet the sad thing is that even with all their knowledge and and loud declarations, Jesus says they didn't know Him. Because, you see, claims to know God mean absolutely nothing if there is no evidence of it in one's life. Jesus said to the Jews as he taught in the temple in John 7, 28, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And then he said, Him you do not know. He was speaking to the religious leaders. Jesus came into the world to reveal the Father to men, to the Jews first, but they rejected Him. They absolutely refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah whom the Father had promised to send. And in doing so, they revealed the fact that they they did not truly know God the Father who had sent Christ into the world. Because had they truly known the Father, had the Jews been true sons of Abraham by faith, They would have gladly received Jesus, but instead they despised and rejected him. In fact, they even thought they were doing God a service by persecuting the Lord and later disciples. And Jesus declares they didn't know God at all. And the same charge Jesus made against the Jews is true of the world, of all unbelievers. They do not know God. I mean, this is the fundamental problem of people in the world. They don't know the true and the living God. The Bible tells us in Romans 1.30 that they are haters of God. We read this morning in Romans 8, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1 They are alienated and hostile in mind. Colossians 1.21 They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Ephesians 4.18 All people are sinners by nature. They are born into a state of rebellion against God. And so there is a native natural deep-seated rebellion against God in the heart of man and they hate God for exposing their sin they hate Christ for exposing their sin I mean men love themselves rather than God that's why Paul tells us in Romans 1 they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator Paul told Timothy in the last days, men basically would be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, rather than lovers of God. Unbelievers refuse to submit to God. And what do they do instead? They substitute a God of their own making and their own liking, a God really that is like them. That's what they substitute for the true and the living God, whom they hate. You see, that's the horrible truth about being lost. Man doesn't know God, not savingly. He may know some things about God, but he is separated from any kind of true relationship with God until by grace through faith he humbly submits his life to God in brokenness and contrition and trusts in Christ alone for salvation. And unless or until this happens, The unbelieving man or woman will persist in their rebellion against God and against the Lord Jesus Christ and all who follow Him. You see, the hearts and minds of the world are completely shut. They are closed tight to the light of God. And until the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks in, their darkened minds will hate and oppose anyone who represents the light because they don't know God. They hate the light, right? They hate the light because they love their sin and they won't come to the light. They don't know God. And knowing God, Jesus said, is the essence of of the eternal life that He gives to all who believe in Him. As He prayed in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the ultimate reason for the world's hatred and persecution, the ultimate reason we see such hatred for God and and the things of God by so many people in our country, even those who profess to be religious, is the fact that they do not know God. As Jesus said, they do not know the one who sent me. You see, Jesus knew that it would help the disciples to bear the hatred of the world, the pagan world and the religious world, if they understood its causes. And remember, he's preparing them for his leaving. This is in the upper room, just hours before Gethsemane and the cross. And he wanted them to understand where, it was, where this hatred was going to come from and its reasons. It wouldn't really be directed against them, even though they would personally have to suffer. The true reason for the anger, the hatred, the hostility, and persecution is the world's hatred of Jesus and its ignorance of the Father who sent him. And the tragedy was and still is that men who do not know God blindly reject Jesus, the only one who can fully reveal the Father. There's no greater expression of the world's rejection of God than in their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after telling his disciples that the world would hate and persecute them because they don't know God, Jesus goes on now to show that this lack of knowledge is absolutely inexcusable because they should have known both the Father and the Son. Look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. What's Jesus saying here? I mean, what does this mean? Well, he clearly is not saying, if he had not come, men would not have been sinners. He's not saying that. I mean, obviously, he does not mean that. He, he is not saying that those who have never heard his words are sinless. Because the Bible is clear that from the time of Adam, all men are born sinners by nature. Even those who have never heard of Jesus, all are guilty sinners before God. All stand condemned before a holy God. There's none righteous, no, not one. In fact, turn to, turn, turn to Romans 3 real quick. Just so you can see this. You know, Paul, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to uh, verse 321, is proving the sinfulness of man. He's kind of winding that down. And he says in verse 9, What then, are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So all men are guilty before God. And then he says, none is righteous. And in case anybody wants to argue, he adds, no, not one. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. And in the case there's an argument, he says, no, not even one. One. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's the verdict. The whole world is accountable to God. The whole world stands condemned before a holy God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so all are guilty sinners before God. Why? Because all men have evidence that there is a creator. By looking at his creation, it's called general revelation. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, Paul writes... For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to all men, because God has shown it to them. How? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Note that, clearly perceived, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul is telling us that all men know there is a God. God has made it evident through creation, again, in what is called general revelation. So all men know there's a God. They don't know details about him, but all men know there's a God, that there is a creator. But Paul goes on to tell us in that passage that they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Why? Well, because they're haters of God, but they do that. And then they're without excuse. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, so they are without excuse. And in addition to that, all people have violated their consciences, doing what they instinctively know is wrong. And so the Scriptures are clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what in the world did Jesus mean when he said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin? Well, Jesus is simply saying that if he had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of the sin of rejecting him and the Father whom he came to reveal. Our Lord basically said the same thing to the Pharisees in John 9, 41. There he said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. Same phrases here. But now you say, we see, so your sin remains. It was simply a way of stating the greater degree of of their guilt they would have been less guilty all men are guilty but they would have been less guilty than they already were but to have seen christ and to heard him and to have heard him and then to refuse to believe in him well that only increased their condemnation i mean there are degrees of sin and nothing seems to increase man's guilt as much as hearing the truth and then rejecting it. The words Jesus spoke to the religious crowds destroyed their traditions and, and exposed the worthlessness of their religious practices. His words just shattered all the self-righteousness of the Jews and their confidence as spiritual men. His word truly was a sharp two-edged sword that exposed cut, and laid bare the reality of their true spiritual condition. And they hated him for it. And they rejected his words. I mean, they had seen the Son of God and and heard his words. They could find no fault in him whatsoever, yet they rejected him. And this is what made their sin so great. And the one who has committed this sin has at the same time rejected the only cure for sin that exists. So what this verse is, it's a matter of comparison. Compared with their terrible sin of rejecting the Lord of glory, their other sins really were as nothing. Not that he wouldn't be held accountable for them, but compared to this, they were as nothing. Because now they had no excuse. He had come to them, spoke to them the words of life, yet they remained obstinate in their unbelief. Their sin of unbelief then was without excuse. They had rejected the light of the world. And light rejected means increased sin and guilt. I mean, they claimed to be true worshipers of God who opposed Jesus because of their faithfulness to God, but Jesus rejected their claim that they were true worshipers of God, saying in verse 23, "Whoever hates me hates my father also." Whoever hates me hates my father also. You see, they could claim to love God while they could not claim to love God while hating Jesus. Because our Lord said, those who hate Him hate the Father as well. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. And therefore it is impossible to hate Jesus without hating the Father as well. And by the same token, you cannot love God without loving His Son. They're one. To reject the one is to reject the other. To hate the one is to hate the other. They're inseparable. I mean, a person may imagine that he loves the Father while he hates the Son, but he's only deceiving himself. Because Christ says here that whoever hates him also hates the Father. Now, do you realize how absolutely shocking and scandalous these words were to the Jews? I mean, scandalous is an understatement. Because they falsely assumed they had a relationship with God based upon their ancestry, namely the fact that Abraham was their forefather. You know, they're they're keeping the law of Moses, at least by their definition of it. They thought that made them right with God. And ironically, they accused Jesus of being just the opposite. They said that he was an illegitimate child and that he was a lawbreaker and a sinner. And the Jews were incensed when Jesus claimed God was his father because they regarded him as demon-possessed. But Jesus said to these religiously zealous Jews, "You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your Father." And of course, we know that went over well. I mean, the Jews claimed to love the Father, yet they hated the Son. But in light of the fact that the Father and the Son are one in essence, that's impossible. I mean, how astounding. The very people who believed that they loved God had in reality demonstrated that they hated Him. And the proof of this was the fact that they hated Jesus. And this holds true today as well. All who scoff at and reject the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the sacrificial substitutionary atoning death of Christ, the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. In other words, all of those who reject the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ do not know God. Period. And this applies to the man who is outwardly religious no less than it does to the hardened unbeliever and the humanistic atheist. And this statement of Jesus in verse 23 particularly answers the question of whether some other religious system can provide salvation, which is being taught today. Well, the New Testament answer to that is that it is not possible. It is not possible for any system which despises or rejects Jesus Christ to find favor with God. In other words, the Trinity is absolutely united and cannot be separated in even the slightest degree. God the Father will not tolerate any insult to His beloved Son. Verse 23 stresses again that anyone in the church or anyone in any other religious system or in the world, anyone who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ rejects God the Father. Because to hate one is to hate the other. That's what Jesus said. And I happen to think Jesus uh, is correct in what he says. Don't you? Well, the way some Christians live, you wouldn't think that they believe what Jesus says is true. So in light of this, let me ask you this question. Are Jews today who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ worshiping the same God that we are worshiping? No. Are Muslims who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ worshiping the same God that we are worshiping? Is anyone who has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ either by flat out denying Him or by not responding properly to what the Scriptures have revealed about His person and work are they worshiping the same God that we are worshiping? Well, the answer is no. The clear-cut answer is no. In fact, Jesus says they do not even know him. I mean, to those who were outraged because he called God his Father, Jesus replied, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so the very idea that anyone can worship and serve God while at the same time they are rejecting or neglecting the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing but a baseless fantasy. If you neglect the Lord Jesus Christ, you neglect God the Father. So in hating Jesus, they hated His Father also because the two were one. They could not say they loved God, for if they had would have loved the one that God sent. You know, as much as I love the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, we need to understand uh, there is no way uh, for a Jewish person uh, to go to heaven other than by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no separate way for them. And I know people like John Hagee teach that there is. There is not. What did Jesus say? No man comes to the Father except by what? Through him. So in rejecting Jesus, they not only rejected his words, but also his works. Notice verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. In verse 22, Jesus spoke about his words here. Uh, He speaks of his works, his his miracles. So you see, it was not only what Jesus said, but it was the works. It was the miracles that, that he had performed. The works that the Father had given him to do, which the Jews and the world rejected. I mean, think of it. They heard the teaching of Jesus, and on top of that, they saw his miraculous works. I mean, think about it. They saw works which no one else had ever performed. And so like Nicodemus in John 3, the entire nation should have responded, you know, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That should have been the very least that they said. I mean, all of the evidence had been presented, but they were not honest enough to receive it, much less to act on it. They would not accept the truth. And this statement in verse 24 is parallel to what Jesus told the Pharisees after he had healed the blind man. I mean, they had to admit that Jesus did, in fact, heal the man born blind. But they would not follow the evidence to its logical conclusion and put their faith and trust in Him as their Messiah. So Jesus told them they were the ones who were really blind. And since they admitted they had seen a miracle, this made their sin even worse, because they were not sinning in ignorance, but rather they were sinning against a flood of great light. They were sinning against the light. And they claimed to know God, but they rejected His Son. And Jesus said, uh, you know, these leaders, they, they didn't know Him who sent me. You know, they're, they're ignorant of the true and the living God. One man said this, Well would it be for all professing Christians, and he was in England, so well would it be for all professing Christians in England, we could say America, if this point was more thoroughly considered. Nothing is more common than to hear men taking comfort in the thought that they know what is right, while at the same time they are evidently unconverted and unfit to die. They rest in that unhappy phrase, We know it, we know it, as if knowledge could wash away all their sins, forgetting that the devil has more knowledge than any of us and yet is no better for it. Let the burning words of our Lord in the passage now before us sink down into our hearts and never be forgotten. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not not sinned, but now they have no cloak for their sin. To see light and not use it, to possess knowledge and yet not turn it to account, to be able to say, I know it, and yet not to say, I believe, will place us at the lowest place on Christ's left hand in the great day of judgment. And I think we as Christians should take notice here. You know, we we are so uh, appalled at the sins of the world and always talking about the sins of the world, and and certainly they are appalling. But I I would suggest to you that in God's sight, those of us, the sins of Christians, our sin is much more appalling because we are sinning against great light. We are knowingly, willfully sinning against great light. And we continue in it. And we wonder why there's no revival. There's no revival because Christians don't want to turn from their sin. The many miracles our Lord did increase the Jews' responsibility and guilt when they refused to submit to Him as Savior and Lord. And in fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus denounced the cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. He said in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day but I tell you that it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I mean, Jesus made it very clear that it would be more tolerable even for the pagans in Tyre and Sidon and for wicked Sodom on judgment day than for these cities. In other words, increased light rejected means increased sin and guilt. And so so in spite of Jesus' words, as well as his mighty works, which proved the truth of his claim to be Israel's Messiah, God incarnate, and in spite of, of many compelling proofs of his identity, what did they do? They still rejected him. But they didn't merely reject him. Oh, no. If that wasn't bad enough, they even went so far as to attribute his miraculous works to Satan instead of God. And that is the most serious sin of all because it is the only one that is not forgivable. Because they attributed his miraculous works to Satan instead of the Holy Spirit, Jesus pronounced their sin to be unforgivable. He said in Matthew 12, 31 and 32, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word, against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And while that specific sin can no longer be committed because Jesus is not physically present on earth, the principle remains the same. And the principle is this. Total rejection in the face of total revelation, is unforgivable since there is nothing left for God to show such people. And Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way, "'How much worse punishment do you think "'will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot "'the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant "'by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace?' To hate and reject the Lord Jesus Christ and to hate God is to be doomed to an eternal hell and to bring upon yourself an eternal judgment of far greater degree. Jesus came and revealed God in a way He had never been revealed before. But the Jews, for the most part, rejected Him. And their rejection of Jesus in defiance of such overwhelming evidence produced a greater sin and a greater guilt, just a terrible condemnation. And please make note of the fact that their unbelief was not due to a lack of solid evidence. No, they heard His words. They saw the miracles. They still rejected Him. And it's still true today. I mean, unbelief is not due to a lack of evidence because there is more than enough evidence to believe in Jesus Christ. To begin with, general revelation, all men know there's a God, that He's the Creator, and that He should be worshipped and thanked as God. But they suppress that truth. Why? Because they're haters of God. People reject the evidence, they raise other objections, which are nothing more than excuses for their unbelief, again, because they hate God, they love their sin, and they do not want to repent. And loved ones, uh, as you all know, we live in a nation of people who have been exposed to the light. Uh, of the truth of the gospel again and again and again and again over decades and decades and decades. It goes out every day over the airwaves on radio, television, the Internet, podcasts. It's in every form of, of printed material. This nation has been saturated with the truth of the gospel. And yet there is massive rejection of Jesus, not only among unbelievers, but among those who profess to be Christ in the church. and people are sinning against great light. I mean we as Christians take our sins so lightly. It's become so respectable. Oh this one little thing or that one little thing. Listen, we are sinning against light. We're sinning against the God who loved us and gave himself for us. It's serious. People in this country are sinning against great light. And that is the most serious sin any human being can ever commit. One man said, Let us settle it down as a first principle in our religion, that religious privileges are in a certain sense very dangerous things. If they do not help us toward heaven, they will only sink us deeper into hell. They add to our responsibility to whomsoever much is given of him, much shall be required. He that dwells in a land of open Bibles and preached gospel, and preached gospel, and yet dreams that he will stand in the judgment day on the same level with an untaught pagan is fearfully deceived. He will find to his own cost, except he repents, that his judgment will be according to his light. The mere fact that he had knowledge and did not improve it will of itself prove one of his greatest sins. He that knew his master's will and did not do it shall be beaten with many stripes. Luke 12. The Jews had seen Jesus' mighty works and heard his word, but they would not receive the truth. They wouldn't admit it. They would not believe. Instead, they rejected him and they plotted how they might kill him. And Jesus says the world hates God, and it hates Him. And it hates us because we belong to Him. And all of that hatred is inexcusable. It's inexcusable to hate God, Romans 1. It's inexcusable to hate Jesus, John chapter 15. But they did it, and people still do They hate us because they hated our Lord. They hate us because we're not of the world. And bottom line, they hate us because they don't know God no matter what they say. But none of this came as a surprise or a shock to our Lord because all of this hatred is a fulfillment of Scripture. Look at verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. I mean, ironically, their own scriptures long before predicted this reaction and hatred on their part. I mean, Jesus knew it was to fulfill what is written in their law. And notice he says, their law. He didn't say written in the word of the Lord or in God's law. He said their law. Why does he say that? Well, I think for this reason. And these religious men boasted about the law, of having the law, of of knowing the law. And they certainly did, forwards and backwards. Many of them had the entire Torah memorized, the first five books of the Bible, and, and much more. So they boasted of the law, of having the law, knowing the law, yet their law said they would do exactly what they did. And for all their knowledge of the law, they were blind to it. And Jesus said to them earlier, You boast about the Scriptures, and those very Scriptures speak of me, but you can't even see it. In one sense, they knew the Scriptures far better than most people in their day. But they couldn't see the truth. They could not see what the simplest believer can see. They completely missed the truth. They completely missed the entire point of Scripture. And the Jews had the clearest evidence that could be given his words, his mighty works, yet they persisted in hating both Christ and the Father who sent him. As Jesus said in the last part of verse 25, quoting Psalm 69:4, they hated me without a cause. They hated him without a cause. In other words, there was no valid cause, no, no valid reason for the people to hate Jesus. The rejection of Jesus had nothing to do with any imperfection in himself, in his words or in his works. It was totally because of their own wickedness and hardness of heart. And the fact that the world continues to hate Jesus graphically displays the hardness of man's heart and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. But God knew that they would hate His Son. And this hatred didn't jeopardize His plan of redemption, not in the least. There wasn't a plan A or a plan B. There was one plan, God's plan of redemption. And this hatred didn't jeopardize it for one moment. In fact, hating Jesus was prophesied. Killing Him was prophesied. It was all part of God's eternal plan, His plan of redemption. In His sermon on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so by means of all the hatred, God was merely fulfilling His plan of redemption. The hatred of men resulted in uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus in order that men, in order that you and I might be brought to Christ, that we might be saved. They hated me, Jesus says, without a cause. But he says to the apostles, you know, this is, this is not the end of the plan. That they would hate me without a cause is the plan. That is the plan. And it was necessary that he be hated. It was necessary that he be crucified, that he might bear in his body our sins upon the cross. Well, at this point, Poor disciples, I mean, they're probably looking at each other, wondering how in the world are we ever going to survive this? You know, how are we going to fulfill the promise of verse 16 to go and bear fruit that remains? I mean, how are we going to do this? Well, the answer is verses 26 and 27. How will they overcome the hatred? How will they overcome the opposition and persecution? by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples would not have to face the world's opposition in their own strength. Now in verses 26 and 27, Jesus reiterated His earlier promise in John 14 that He would send the Holy Spirit to indwell them and empower them. And the Spirit's coming made certain that all of Jesus' promises would be fulfilled. In fact, the rest of the New Testament Uh, echoes this same truth that the promises Christ made to his disciples and by extension to all believers would be ensured and enabled through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, the gospel has spread across the world. And since the time of the apostles, by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, believers have gone to the uttermost parts of the world spreading the gospel. I mean, literally turning the world upside down. Or as someone has said, turning it right side up. Listen, opposition and hatred from the world will always be there. We just haven't experienced it here. But it's coming. Yes, I know that the rapture on the prophetic calendar is the next thing to happen and it could happen at any moment but i worry that so many christians are or so many christians believe that the rapture is going to deliver us from any kind of opposition or persecution or tribulation in this life certainly we will we will be delivered from the wrath of god during the great tribulation the time of jacob's trouble but jesus has not promised that we're not going to suffer opposition Hatred, opposition, and persecution. In fact, he's promised it. So yes, let's look for the, great, uh, the return of our great and glorious Savior. You know, let's, you know, let's look forward to the rapture. It could happen tonight. It could happen tomorrow. It might be 10 years. It might be 15 years, 20 years. Remember the believers under the severe persecution of the Roman Empire thought it was going to be in their lifetime. Certainly, there are things prophetically that have happened since then that would indicate to us that we are living in the latter part of the last days. But the point I'm simply trying to make is, let's don't have this escapist mentality that we think we're going to get out of any opposition, hatred, opposition, uh, tribulation or persecution. We may. I don't think so. I think it's coming. And I think the primary reason for it's coming is to purify the church. Because the church in this country is corrupt. It's a harlot. Church in this country has prostituted itself with the world. And Christ is going to purify his church. He's going to purify his bride. And nothing does that like persecution. Because when persecution comes and it really begins to cost people something, when you might get arrested for going to church or you might lose your job for going to church, you might not be able to buy something or sell something or travel because you're a believer. Those who really aren't, they're not going to stick around the church. Well, there will always be the seeker-sensitive churches, the, the Joel Osteens, the Rick Warrens, you know, those, that, those of that ilk. And they just merely uh, accommodate themselves to the culture. And they'll just keep growing. They just accommodate to the culture. I'm talking about true biblical believers. Persecution is going to come, and anybody that's not is not going to stick around. And I think this pandemic... Uh, has been revealing about churches and Christians. The world should see the church living fearlessly and courageously because we have nothing to fear, not even death. Because Christ has removed death's sting. As I said last week, it is merely the portal for us to heaven. So opposition and hatred from the world are always going to be there. It's going to come. It's inevitable. Because if they hated him, they'll hate us. But so will the power of the Holy Spirit. When it comes, the Holy Spirit will enable us and empower us to live the life that we're called to live. And to accomplish the purposes of God to gather His church. And as I said in our last study, when persecution comes, we can be encouraged by and fall back on that wonderful promise of Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or we can look to that promise in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Ever. You could say amen. Because that's a glorious truth. So when the world is said and done its absolute worst, it can't rob us of these great and precious promises. It can't rob us of the life that we have in Christ. Our lives are hidden in Him, providing that you actually have a life hidden in Him. And you're not merely just a professor and a church goer. Because there are many professors and many church goers today. And it's not a reality. Faith is, is, they don't, it's, it's not a reality in their lives. They give evidence of it by the way they live. And so, if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, look, I want you to know uh, the hour is late, the night is coming. Now, are we nearer to our salvation than when we first believed? And now is not the time to continue to play games. Now is not the time to continue to be merely a professor and a churchgoer. Now is the time to turn from your sin and run to Christ and cast yourself upon Him and ask Him to save you. To forgive your sins and to save you. And then, by the grace and strength that He supplies, live the Christian life. Actually live it. And proclaim it. So this morning, if if there's anyone here, if there's anyone listening or watching online, you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, I want you to know that your eternal destiny is not heaven. Man's default destination is not heaven. Man's default destination is an eternal hell. And the reason for that is all men are born sinners by nature and they become sinners by practice. And their sin has separated them from a holy God. I mean, God is their holy creator and and righteous judge and they've sinned against Him. They're alienated from God. And if you die in your sin, the Bible says you're going to go to an eternal hell and you'll pay for your sin throughout eternity. But God who is holy and just and righteous is also loving and merciful and gracious and kind. And because of His great love, He provided a way that sinful man can have his sin forgiven and come into a right relationship with God, be reconciled to Him, and have heaven in the end. But there's only one way for that to happen. Sin has to be paid for. It must be paid for. And all sin will be paid for. And so who's going to pay for sin? Because to do so, you have to be absolutely sinless. And perfect. Well, no one could be found on the earth, that's for sure. And so God, because of his great love, he sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. God so loved that he gave, and he he gave the best that heaven had to give. The best he could possibly offer. And he sent Jesus into this world. And Jesus, because he loved us, He humbled himself to a degree that we cannot even begin to imagine. And he condescended to leave the glories of heaven, to step out of eternity into time and come down to this earth as a man. He was fully God and fully man and the same person uh, at the same time. And not only did he humble himself and become a man, much lower than that he became a servant and even much lower than that he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. It's a condescension we can't even begin to understand. And while he was on this earth, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled the law to a T. In other words, he lived the perfect, sinless life that you and I could never live. And then, being falsely accused, he was uh, tried in three corrupt, trials, kangaroo trials, and uh, sentenced to death, death upon the cross, which is for felons and Gentiles. So Jesus went to the cross, and on that cross, he took upon himself the full fury of the Father's wrath for our sin. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But think of the billions that will be saved. And each one of them had an eternity's worth of sin. So billions of eternities worth of sin. How do we comprehend that? And Jesus took all of that sin upon himself. And then he suffered God's wrath for all of that sin. That's what the darkness of the three hours, the second three hours on the cross was all about. Jesus suffered the wrath of Almighty God for billions of eternities worth of sin. And he paid the price in full. He died. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died in our place. He died the death we deserved, the just for the unjust, the holy for the unholy. He died the death we deserved. He really died. He was buried. But then, praise God, he was raised again for our justification, was here for 40 days, and then ascended to heaven where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is ever making intercession for all of those who belong to him. So the price has been paid. The, the way uh, the, the way to heaven has been opened. The way to forgiveness of sin has been opened. But it's only through Jesus Christ. And to appropriate this for yourself, you have to humble yourself yourself. Acknowledge your sin before God. Ask him to forgive your sin and to save you. And I can tell you based upon uh, the word of God that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so if you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, I'm, I'm calling on you today to humble yourself. Acknowledge your sin before a holy God. And cast yourself upon the love and mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who died to pay for sin and ask him to save you. And I'm not joking around. I'm as serious as somebody could be because people are dying every single day. People are all worried about COVID. Well, look, there's between five and 6,000 people die every single day. And most of them are going to an eternal hell. And some of you are probably on your way to an eternal hell. And I'm calling on you today. It's God's mercy that you're here. It's God's mercy that you're hearing this. It's His mercy, His grace, and His love. And I'm calling on you today to turn to Christ. Seek forgiveness of sin. Come to Christ. Come to Him today. Let's stand. It's your love that makes me see it's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been set free. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading, Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530 547 4400. That's 530 547 4400. Or write to us at PO Box 837, Palisadro, California 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening.